You are listening to Local Motion. I'm Laura Palmasano, your host for this episode. June is Pride Month. It commemorates the Stonewall Riots in 1969. The riots are considered the start of the gay liberation movement in the United States. On today's special hour-long program, we'll hear from Colorado LGBTQ historian David Duffield. He discusses LGBTQ history in the United States and Colorado, along with efforts to preserve it. How did you become a Colorado LGBTQ historian? It began when I was about 31. I had been researching Colorado LGBT history and been doing work with One Colorado and the Civil Unions battles in 2013. Anyway, I decided that I needed to do something because there had really been nothing done about Colorado LGBTQ history. And coming out of the civil unions work, I realized that the LGBTQ community was trapped in a cycle of historical ignorance, that we were not aware of our own past, and therefore we may not be able to, in general, use the past to help us create a better future for ourselves and those after us. Is that how the Colorado LGBTQ History Project was born? The Colorado LGBTQ History Project was born in 2014 after I approached the Center on Colfax with a pilot study to look at what LGBTQ history projects did across the country. So we engaged in six months of research. I surveyed, I think, four different LGBTQ history projects and their leaders and looked at what they did. A lot of them were older, some of them were younger, some of them, the projects were 30 or 40 years old, some of them were like 20 years old, some of them were defunct. But they all focused on sort of four core areas, which were oral history, document archiving, education, and networking. And that eventually, after the pilot study, is what we decided to focus on in the Colorado LGBTQ History Project. What are the project's goals? The mission is to document, teach, and preserve the history of the communities of LGBTQ people in Colorado. Focusing on those four core areas has different goals for each one, but essentially, oral history is to document the person's stories in their own words. And we've gotten almost 100 uh, oral histories with, oh, I want to say 300 to 500 hours of recorded documentation. Document archiving is about taking the written word of folks and putting it into public hands. So taking papers, collections, and that sort of thing and putting those into a receiving institution. With partnership with Denver Public Library recently, in the last six years, we went from just 12 collections at their Western History Department to over 30, roughly. And then by education, we focus on teaching teachers about LGBTQ history, doing exhibits about LGBTQ history, and then doing research about LGBTQ history at the college and graduate level. So that way, there's some new perspectives on the history at all times. And then finally, networking looks at working with other organizations, largely through presentations and teaching folks about the history of the LGBTQ community in Colorado. What do you do as an LGBTQ historian? I do many things. A lot of what I do is research and explanation. Most of what I do, I would say about 50% of what I do these days is related to uh, teaching, is related to giving presentations. The other half is divided between overseeing volunteers and interns, and then doing oral histories and document archiving, as well as educational research, and then um, working with organizations to talk about the history of LGBTQ people in the United States and Colorado specifically. The Colorado LGBTQ History Project is based at the Center on Colfax. What is the Center on Colfax? The Center on Colfax, formerly known as the Colorado LGBTQ Center, renamed itself and rebranded to focus on a geographic area in 2020. But essentially, it's the LGBTQ Center of Denver. It was founded in 1978 with a group of LGBTQ activists as the central clearinghouse and hub for the communities of the Denver metro area. They've worked with folks from across the state and offer programming uh, from our elders programming, like the West of 50 group, to the uh, Rainbow Alley Youth Services Center in the basement of the center, um, which is our youth drop-in center, to the legal and transgender focus programs in the center, among many, many other programs. So the center really is at the center of the community. It creates and throws pride in Denver every year, and then focuses on advocacy and creating a space for LGBTQ people in, in and around the area. You mentioned Pride. June is Pride Month. What is the history of Pride in Colorado? 
So Pride begins in Colorado, in Denver's case at least, in 1974, about six months after an event called the Denver Gay Revolt, which is Denver's Stonewall moment. The organizers of the Gay Coalition of Denver worked with other organizations around Denver to have a quote-unquote gay inn at Cheeseman Park, essentially a kind of picnic and a pageant and celebrations. Two years later, in 1976, the first Pride Parade went from Cheeseman Park down to Civic Center Park, and that is a story in and of itself, but they only got half the road. That was thanks in part to other local uh, drag performers like Christy Lane here in Denver. Pride went through a long period of growth, and then as HIV came along in the 1980s, real bad decline. People started dying, and organizers and all community resources were put towards HIV-AIDS protesting in healthcare. In the end, the center took over Pride, I believe around 1990 or 1991, with the help of the current CEO, like Rex Fuller, and they grew Pride so that by 1996, there were over 300,000 people in Denver's Pride, and it's grown and, and become one of the nation's largest Prides ever since. Can you give us a timeline of some of the major LGBTQ history milestones in Colorado? Yeah, absolutely. So in most of these cases, these are Denver-specific, but we have to understand that the laws that govern the state of Colorado were kind of loosely enforced from time to time. But in most major cities, some of the first anti-LGBTQ laws are anti-cross-dressing laws, which prevent people who are, quote, not in a dress belonging to their sex from presenting in public. The historian Claire Sears notes that in most American cities where this was, and it was targeted against sex workers, specifically women who dressed as men to advertise their services, that it erased transgender people, according to Sears, from the public, from participating in public life. The anti-sodomy laws are hundreds and hundreds of years old, and in some cases were punishable by death or up to life imprisonment, but weren't, as far as we can tell, widely enforced in Colorado until about the early 20th century at which point the punishment was reduced from life imprisonment to, you know, 10 or 15 years. In the 1920s, we started to see crackdowns in the major cities of Colorado, from Denver to most of the other major front-range cities for LGBTQ people. People arrested for cross-dressing go up, people arrested for sodomy go up. And from then until 1954, the number of arrests sort of skyrocketed. After World War II, defense dollars were tied to... Um, morals clauses. Basically, the State Department did not want to spend money in cities where there was vice gambling or any sort of what they called deviancy in cities, which included LGBTQ people as an existence. One of the consequences of this is that police created vice squads or more professional organizations, which had from the 1920s actively gone out and started arresting and policing LGBTQ spaces. This meant, for example, that LGBTQ men could be locked away without their permission for life under something called the psychopathic offender laws. In the 1950s, groups like the Madison Society began to resist this, and like the Daughters of Belitis in Southern California, the local chapter in Denver was called the Denver Area Madison Society, which was active from about 1954 until 1959. In 1959, this first sort of gay activist rights group, which was little more than a social club that got together and discussed uh, gay issues, had a conference here in Denver at the Albany Hotel, and they used their real names, which was very risky of them. Um, unfortunately, the Denver police were waiting in the wings, and a lot of the members were run out of town after one of the members was busted for pornography. The crazy thing about this is that none of these charges, none of this would even probably happen today, but it sets a tone for the visceral relationship between the municipal police departments and city governments and their LGBTQ members. By the 1960s, drag had effectively been banned in Denver and most of the front range, and uh, cities like Boulder and Fort Collins didn't see the same kinds of laws, but they did see the same kinds of I guess, anti-LGBTQ police activities. Several parties were shut down, and Denver and the queer front range, so to speak, were called a demimond. It was very difficult to find places to, to go and to be. So people really either came to Denver for the bar scene, there were six or seven of them at that point, or they went into the rural areas uh, or traveled elsewhere. For people living in more rural parts of the state of Colorado, like the Southwest or the Northeast, 
it really depended upon where you lived. You could find each other, but it wasn't necessarily easy. A lot of the um, stories we have from this period in the early 20th century note that there was really a live and let live attitude in the more rural parts of the state. So while in the cities it was a little harsher, in the rural areas, as long as one kept to oneself, there was a great deal of safety. There's well-documented cases in western Colorado of openly trans men living as themselves up until about the 1950s or 1960s. So the contrast between the rural and urban divide is that in the rural areas, secrecy was safety. In the urban areas, secrecy was risky uh, or being out was risky. One would have to go through certain things and certain avenues in order to find a community. Anyway, by the 19, late 1960s, in Denver's case, a activist drag troupe called the Turnabout Review got drag reintroduced back into Denver with a deal with the Denver Police Department, likely where there may have been payment. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that they started to open their own bars, and the number of gay bars in Denver or grows, doubled in, in the next 10 years. In 1973 and 1974, Denver's Stonewall moment, which was created by the Gay Coalition of Denver and known as the Denver Gay Revolt, where over 300 people met with the Denver City Council and got five anti-gay laws, anti-LGBTQ laws, excuse me, overturned, is the moment in Denver's history where everything begins to change. Now, around the state, especially along the Front Range, the Gay Liberation Fronts, which were these activist LGBTQ groups or gay groups led by you know, 18 to 24-year-olds who were also involved in anti-war movement stuff, in the late 1960s and early 1970s and took their names directly from liberation fronts in other parts of the country and were influenced by feminist and anti-war politics, began to do things like organizing gay groups on the campuses in Boulder and Fort Collins and Greeley and Pueblo and Colorado Springs. Most of these major cities had GLFs or gay liberation fronts, and they began to organize these parties and social worlds. So in what if effectively was a demimonde in the cities, these little seeds of community began to grow. In the western slope, where it was more rural, again, life probably didn't change that much. But what information we have is that at the major colleges, for instance, in the San Luis Valley and in uh, Durango and Grand Junction, there were a few places one could go, but it was, again, a little bit more risky. What were the laws the Denver City Council removed as a result of Denver's Stonewall moment? There were five laws, but in general, the ones to note are the anti-cross-dressing law and the uh, solicitation of sex for sodomy laws. The legacy of these laws is long and carries forward until today. But what ends up happening is that begins to change the minds and hearts of the American people in the long term, even if having a cultural legacy, which is both broad and under talked about and something worth much more further exploration. What was the result of those laws in Denver being repealed? So the result was not overnight. People were still being arrested for cross-dressing essentially for decades afterwards. Men were still being prosecuted for sodomy in different forms and amongst many different charges until probably the 1980s. There was a great deal of danger for people to present in drag or in gender non-conforming attire in public well into the 1980s. One of the consequences is that when you had public marches and displays for queer rights, for example, in 1978, with protests against the murder of a community member by the hands of the Denver police, it was extremely dangerous for the, for the leaders of that protest to go, quote unquote, in face, even though they were probably gender nonconforming or female impersonators. We don't necessarily know how they identified, but what we do know is that at the head of that march, unless it was in broad daylight and with hundreds of other people, they could be arrested as sex workers or face prosecution. And if you imagine that reality for people's lived experiences every single day as a transgender person, you have to imagine that reality still exists to this day. What were the Stonewall riots? The Stonewall riots, historically speaking, were the culmination of a series of events. There were multiple instances of police getting down on queer people in the 1950s and 60s and raiding bars and doing all sorts of mass arrests, in fact, decades before that. Stonewall, along with, say, the Black Hat Bar in Los Angeles in the early 60s, or Gene Compton's Cafeteria Ride in San Francisco, and then along with other 
resistance movements were really a lot of LGBTQ people standing up from all over the United States and fighting against police oppression. Stonewall lasted for a week. And what it was is that in New York in 1969, the bar, which was owned by the mob, was raided by the police. And the patrons were so angry as they were being held away that we were not exactly sure who it was, but one of them shouted, why don't you fight back? And this could have been Stormy de la Varie or others who were famous black gender nonconforming people. Anyway, the short of it is they trapped the police in the bar. And in the middle of this, the police call for backup. There's a back and forth. There's chasing people around. It essentially leads to a week-long riot turned protest in which the very first pride marked an anniversary one year later. So when we say that Stonewall was the beginning of queer rights, it was really the beginning of the movement towards public protest and public action, which culminated in an act of resistance, which was marked every year as an anniversary and is a hallmark to celebrating those moments in our stories and our past that celebrate not only victories, but moments of transition, which have massive importance. When we carry on those traditions, we set the tone for generations to come. And Stonewall, while it was the spark that lit the fire, it's also one of the seminal events in American LGBTQ history because it sets the tone for how queer people begin to change from generations and generations of oppression. So while in Denver's case, the gay coalition of Denver's, the Denver Gay Revolt Stonewall moment, Denver is certainly true. Everything after that moment changes. Everything after that moment is different. That's the one place in time in history when we can say the community grew and grew rapidly. By the 1970s and early 1980s, the number of institutions, the number of bars, the number of visible out people grew precipitously. So by the 1980s, by the time of the HIV AIDS crisis, there's an out and proud community all over the state of Colorado. It's still a demimond, looked down upon, but it is kicking and thriving, and it is fighting for its own rights. You are listening to Local Motion on KVNF. I'm Laura Palmisano. On this episode, we are hearing an interview with Colorado LGBTQ historian David Duffield. We've reached the 1980s in this timeline. The AIDS crisis is happening across the United States. What is happening in Colorado? The HIV-AIDS crisis in Colorado was a little bit delayed geographically by about a year or two, by most accounts, because the major centers of the viral propagation were on the East and West Coast, specifically San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, New York, um, not to mention the South. In Colorado's case, one of the first seminal events was called the creation of the Colorado AIDS Project. In 1983, at the fifth annual Lesbian and Gay Health Association Conference, they had a second annual panel on the on how to treat HIV AIDS. And so most of this conference in June of 1983 was related to creating like safe sex spaces, altering behavior, pathologies for the virus, and then eventually like what would become known as the People with AIDS Coalition or the PWAC. But this became the first sort of activist group nationwide. But in this conference, they created something called the Denver Principles. The Denver Principles were the first statement of LGBTQ healthcare, uh, specifically for HIV, of patients' rights for HIV, almost extended to the point that HIV mandated that healthcare should be a universal right and that the Denver Principles called for an ethic around people with HIV having a role in their healthcare as well as other rights like dying with dignity, the right to disclosure, the right to really have a say in their treatment, which in the new patient empowerment model from the 1970s onward was a growing uh, political ethic. But for HIV, it was a manifesto of rights that created for the first time something which uh, people living with HIV could look at and say, this is what I think and feel. It's not necessarily just about the shame and the stigma. It's about the ownership and the control. Um, and about the humanity behind it, essentially the human rights behind the patient and the patient's rights. So in the mid-1980s, the HIV epidemic starts to kill tens of thousands of people per month across the United States. And through 1991, you start to see massive memorials. The HIV-AIDS quilt is one cultural response to 
the lack of, frankly, federal response about the HIV AIDS epidemic. In Colorado's case, the Colorado uh, AIDS Project splits into several groups after, I think, six or seven years of funding, and then starts to serve all the different parts of, of Colorado. The transmission of the virus occurs mostly through men who have sex with men, but there are also women who are infected with the virus, women of color, people who are needle exchange users, people of different backgrounds. And what we have to remember about the consequence of the virus is that, and this is the part of the story that never really gets told, HIV comes from Congo, from the Congo River, but it's also connected to colonialism and racism. King Leopold II committed a genocide upon the Congolese people. As a result of that, rampant disease and rampant exploitation of Africans by Europeans was much more widespread, and this is upon centuries and centuries of exploitation, colonization, and slavery. As a result, in histories by Jacques Pepin and several others, including a book called Tinderbox, they talk about how going back through the studies and uh, and histories of HIV, we now know that HIV comes from the Congolese River Basin and that it comes out of these areas uh, from the simian immunodeficiency virus that somehow got transmitted into the human populations of those regions, likely through eating wild animals, possibly over thousands of years, and there may have been multiple exchanges. But whatever the case, it gets concentrated through these railroad networks. And because these are homosocial networks, what this means is that there were probably larger numbers of same-sex behavior going on. And when French doctors went through brothels of Kinshasa and Leopold, what they noticed is that amongst these railroad workers, there was a wasting disease. So that meant that likely the pathologies of the virus start in the major urban centers of the Congolese River Basin, which are these large growing urban centers. By about 1965, it had been transmitted via probably a teacher research group uh, to Haiti and from Haiti or other areas we just don't know yet. And this is according to Jacques Pepin in a history of AIDS that it comes to the United States. So by the late 1960s, we get cases like Robert Rayford, who's a 15 year old kid in St. Louis who presents with organ failure. And in, in retrospect, uh, several of these other cases, we know that these were people who were early infections with HIV. So while HIV comes to the United States in the late 1960s, it coincides with sexual revolution and the gay rights revolution, which means that it starts to propagate amongst a newly sexually liberated people who oftentimes don't go see a doctor about their health care because they could you know, be locked away for life or they could otherwise lose their livelihood. The short of this is, is that HIV propagates and grows. And by the 1980s, one starts to see this massive die-off. So HIV is a consequence of colonialism and racism. So that by 1984, we, we must never forget that one out of two people infected with HIV is, is a black, brown, or marginalized person. And this is on top of a lack of response of HIV healthcare from the federal government. Randy Schiltz said in his histories of HIV that Ronald Reagan himself didn't even say HIV until 1987, a full five years after the virus had started and hundreds of thousands of people had died. So in Colorado's case, the virus propagates mostly through these populations, and then the response to the virus grows precipitously. Hundreds of thousands of people start to volunteer. Colorado was viewed as a little bit as being a little bit ahead of, of the game of other states because the state responds to it in a more proactive way. There's more funds, more resources, but there's still other things like the health department coming to knock on your door if you get a positive test and making you tell them about your sexual partners, thus outing you to someone. So anonymized testing becomes a big deal because it safeguards people from the stigma of HIV, which is almost immediate. We must never forget that there were those people who frankly made money, power, and fame off the backs of this. There was an instance in Douglas County where on public radio, a person would thank God every time someone with HIV died. We must also never forget that the response to this at a national scale was a literal discussion of whether or not they should quarantine people with HIV like lepers when the nature of the virus is completely different. And the fear and the stigma led to violent reprisals. The story of Ryan Wine and having his house burned down uh, and the multiple issues of violence against people with HIV show the fear and the stigma around it which persists well relatively recently. So the short of it is, is that HIV 
is a much more dramatic tale and that even with the antiretroviral tales in Colorado and the growth of support networks like what is today the Colorado Health Network and Colorado AIDS Project in the 1980s and 1990s, the number of people dying is tremendous. One study showed that in 1995, one out of six gay men would be infected with HIV in Colorado. So by the time the antiretroviral drugs come along in 1996, they save lives and they help stop the infection. But getting those drugs to people, making them affordable becomes a struggle for the next 20 years to this very day. We're now into the 1990s. From the 1990s on to modern day, what are some quick milestones for the LGBTQ community in Colorado? Well, one of the biggest milestones and tragedies and hardships was Amendment 2. In 1991, uh, communities along the Front Range, Aspen, Boulder, and Denver were fighting for anti-discrimination protections. This was protection in housing, protection in public accommodations, protections from discrimination, which had long existed. And these number of anti-discrimination ordinances grew from dozens to hundreds by that time. A group called Coloradoans for Family Values put a ballot measure on the Colorado state constitution in 1991, saying that the state could not recognize gays and lesbians as a class of people. This was in contrast to Proposition 8 in Oregon, which was much more visceral and much more punitive in its language. The Amendment 2 language was a little bit more ambivalent and actually, frankly, confusing to some people. The whole framework of the argument was around special rights versus equal rights. One thought, one argued that that gays and lesbians were arguing for special treatment versus anti-discrimination treatment. Um, the amendment passed, surprisingly, with a high margin. I think it was like 52 or 55 percent. And this was the first time that the LGBTQ community of Colorado had been organized politically in any motive. So it was a massive shock and loss. Colorado actually got the moniker the hate state, and there was a boycott of the state through 1993, costing a billion dollars in tourism or something like that. The short of it is, is that the amendment almost immediately was put under injunction and never enforced, and it would have denied gays and lesbians any sort of political rights at all. But it went to the Supreme Court in 1995 and was decided in 1996 in a case called Romo v. Evans, which was the first Supreme Court case to uphold gay rights, uh, saying that, this, quote, this Colorado cannot do, a state cannot to separate a class of people from its laws or make them a stranger to its laws. Basically saying in this case that the state way overstepped its bounds and this was beyond the pale for, for legal recognition. Some of the other hallmarks, again, were in 1996 when pride began to grow, the, anti-retro, the antiretroviral drugs came out and so sort of HIV becomes more manageable, not the killer that it was. But in the years that followed, um, marriage equality becomes a big issue in the 2000s. And then eventually um, Colorado starts to fight for civil unions in, in the 2010s um, and achieves them in 2013 and 2014. By today, we have marriage equality. We have an openly gay governor. And so some of the major achievements that come about come about specifically from LGBTQ people fighting for their rights. One of the most fundamental lessons of this is that in this long history of battles and discrimination, the thing that we've always had is each other. And deep down in our hearts, when we're living our authentic lives and telling our stories, we are creating a bridge of empathy with those around us. The short of it is that as long as we have each other in our community, there really is no stopping us. So while pride is a commemoration of protest and has its challenges and its unique aspects, one of the things we have to remember is that in this long history, we've always had each other. What is the history of drag performance in Colorado? That is a very, very complicated question. What we call drag performance has changed names over time. In the 19th century, it was known as female impersonation. It was very, very popular. People don't know this, but Brigham Young's youngest son in Utah was a female impersonator and was beloved by the Mormons of Utah. In the 19th and early 20th centuries in Colorado, drag was actually so well-loved that it became a symbol of civic culture and civic virtue. If you had a famous female impersonator come through, like Julian Eltinch did in Colorado in the 1920s, he drew crowds of hundreds of people to the Central Business District, which had been recently electrified. Yet in the 1920s through the 1950s, city prosecutors start to get really, really harsh on 
vice, which includes LGBTQ people, not to mention gender nonconforming people. Again, mentioning those laws from before about anti-cross-dressing and the punishments for sodomy. And really LGBTQ people in the history of drag are intertwined because drag is one of the seminal art forms and has always been a safe space for gender nonconforming people. So drag in Denver and Colorado essentially is banned in many cases by these harsher laws like the anti-cross-dressing laws and enforcement by very active prosecutors and police and vice squads. But by the 1960s and 70s, you see major resistance and a resurgence of drag in most Front Range and most Colorado communities. To this day, drag serves as an important place, particularly for the safety of its gender illusion in which gender nonconforming people can perform and feel like they're not going to be hurt. But it also sets a tone for a safe space for LGBTQ people, which it has always done. So drag performers have always been at the heart of our community. They've always led the charge when it comes to change. They've always, even in times of reticence, there are people within the community who are at the heart of civic action. I think the point of the drag community is to say that in terms of activism, they've been leaders. Who are some of the most notable figures in Colorado's LGBTQ history? Most of the notable figures come from the last 50 years, because those are folks who are still alive, who achieved things in the public memory, which are still around. Jerry Garash comes to mind. He's a famous lawyer and brother of Walter Garash, who was a the late Walter Garash, who was a lawyer here in town. Jerry led the Gay Coalition of Denver and was a founding board members of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force. Others, like some of our first caucus members, Christy Lane, who was a founding member of the Inter- International Court of the Rocky Mountain Empire and helped bring pride as a parade to Denver, are very famous local people. All of the founding mothers of the Big Mama Rag, which was the lesbian feminist newspaper here in Denver in the 1970s through 1984. Another notable figure is Tishuk, who was the first out lesbian to run for governor against Roy Romer in the late 1980s. She also helped to lead Equal Protection of Coloradoans Coalition and anti-discrimination ordinances across the state of Colorado. And a great deal of her legacy is not simply being the first out person to run, but to change the conversation around HIV, LGBTQ issues, and to bring attention to that from some of the highest power holders in the state of Colorado. How has Colorado as a state been at the forefront of LGBTQ civil rights in the United States? Colorado's really had several achievements. Number one is the early access to HIV AIDS medication, among other pioneering bills from the 1970s that come from the Gay Coalition of Denver. But really, it's the allyship shown between the leaders of the state and the cities with the LGBTQ community, which so early on helped change the conversation and the discourse around it. Um, Some of the first sponsors of pro-LGBTQ legislation Notably, Mayor Wellington Webb, who was then a state legislature, worked with Jerry Garash to introduce an anti-discrimination and credit uh, bill in the 1970s. In the 1980s, it was the conversation between folks like T. Shook that helps and the leaders of the city of Denver that helped bring about some of the first anti-discrimination ordinances. In later years, it would be coalitions of people who were aimed at maintaining and turning back some of the regressive things that came about as a result of Amendment 2 in 1992, notably with the Colorado Legal Initiatives Project, which took on the legal suits against Amendment 2, culminating in the Romer v. Evans decision in 1996, which was the first decision in American history to uphold LGBTQ rights, which again set later precedents for civil rights like uh, marriage equality. But really what we're talking about is a statewide discourse and talking points about how LGBTQ people and the community at large live, thrive, and base our common humanity over a heritage which has dehumanized us. When we speak of the major achievements, we have to speak of coalitions of people who are really bound in and of themselves to a higher purpose, which is to say that we're all human and there's no reason why LGBTQ people can't be treated equally before the law, but before human culture as well. We come from a tradition which dehumanizes so many for so long, for so many different reasons, that when we take the opposite approach and we speak first with the saying, we are all human, 
that sets the tone for understanding how and why some of these victories come about. It comes from a basis of human rights and looking first at our empathy, sympathy, and our common humanity. You are listening to Local Motion, KVNF's weekly public affairs program. I'm your host, Laura Palmisano. Let's get back to our interview with Colorado LGBTQ historian David Duffield. The Colorado LGBTQ History Project also has an education aspect. You mentioned this earlier in our interview. How are you working on getting LGBTQ history included in social studies programs? As a historian, I give training to LGBTQ educators across the state of Colorado. I worked with LGBTQ coordinators in other parts of the state. Now, during my day job, I'm a history teacher. So I work within my networks to train and teach and work with other history teachers to tell these stories and to talk about the importance of them. So essentially, it's offering space for educators to learn about the stories. And then it's offering resources for educators to know about the importance of the history and be able to ask questions. As a historian, you look to the past, but what would you like to see in the future for the LGBTQ community in Colorado? Oh, uh, <laughs> that's tough to say. Really, I would like to see a fundamental quality. In teaching the history of African-Americans at my school, we focus on how Black people all over the world, from Brazil to Africa, decolonized or fought racism to the United States. And really what systems of oppression are based on is denying the humanity. So teaching Black history, teaching Black stories, electing Black people to office, voting, these are all ways that Black communities have fought systemic racism and achieved great, great means. I think something similar is true for most marginalized groups. When we're looking at historically marginalized groups, we have to look at access to politics, access to basic rights, I think that we have to come at this from a intersectional approach as well. We can't just talk about LGBTQ rights. We have to talk about all our rights. In, in fact, we have to base all our political work in, in human rights and the equality before the law that's inherent in that. So for me, I would love to see people learn these stories. I'd like kids to grow up in a Colorado in which they don't have to share the same burden of ignorance I grew up with regarding LGBTQ history, and I think that's now possible. In your opinion, what are some of the major struggles the LGBTQ community still faces? Well, I mean, there's the anti-trans bills, which are national. I think the Human Rights Campaign and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force tracked over 400 anti-trans bills from child health care to transgender people in sports. And really, it's the same story in a different light. It's people using the LGBTQ community as a foil, in a way, to gain power, prestige, and make money. A lot of it is based around mental health care. The stigma and the shame and the kind of visceral rhetoric going on in the United States now is akin to the panics of Amendment 2 and what was called the Lavender Scare in the 1950s with the Cold War. I've talked with my other historian friends, and we kind of agree that the the signs are there. There's moral panic around people doing things, but they don't tend to last long. Panics come and go in American history and human history. And I'm not going to say that if we wait this one out, it will go away, but the discourse will likely change in the next political cycle or something like that. But my greatest fear for the LGBTQ community is akin to what we saw with African-American rights in the late 19th century, which is a steady erosion of rights. We've achieved a modicum of rights in terms of marriage equality and other things, but still fundamentally, are we talking about economic or racial or social justice? We are facing the erosion of rights, I think, not at the same level that African-Americans were in the late 19th century or women were after the 19th Amendment. But I think in terms of these processes in American history, in terms of the expansion and regression of rights, we're in a, a time of regression, which people push back against it. They say, no, 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 you've gone too far when you have um, more <laughs> fundamental equality. 
But really, I'm very worried about the queer youth. I was privileged enough to sit with Denver Public Schools students to watch a movie in Denver about what these queer youth were going through and what they thought was important. And as an educator to sit there and listen to the exceptional wisdom in that was truly moving. I got to see kids 16, 17, 18 years old and listen to what they said was important. And they said that you know, listening to them was important. Talking about queer stories was important. Talking about the intersection of being black and gay or Chicano and queer is also important because there's double whammies there. You know, what is it like to be a gender nonconforming or trans kid? And they say, I, I appreciate the options I'm given now, but there's a lack of discourse on what we want going forward. The wisdom in their voices was akin to listening to an elder speak because they know what the world is and the wisdom comes from not necessarily their experience, but their insight. They can see what the world can become. They can dream of it or they can experience the harsh nightmare of future reality. I know that when I was their age, I dreamed one day of marriage equality and that came to pass. And I worked for that my whole life. I know that when people who were older than me were their age, they dreamt of an end to HIV. For the queer youth out there and the queer public, what we are dreaming, what we want can eventually become a reality. But we have to work together to listen first and, and find out what that is. I'm not necessarily worried about moral panics today as I am about the vision. If we as a queer people can work together and create a common vision, which is rooted in social justice and economic justice and human rights, I feel like that we can overcome any of these things. As a teacher, I'm often fond of saying that the words we teach our children shape the world. But I know that the words we teach our children shape the world so that if we give them the words and the language to be able to describe and envision their future, there really is no stopping them. There's just giving them the opportunity to create it with our guidance. As part of the Colorado LGBTQ History Project, you've collected over 100 oral histories. You mentioned these at the start of our interview. Let's go back to that. Can you give us some examples of oral histories that stand out to you? So unfortunately, once in a while, I have the opportunity to work with someone who passes away shortly thereafter. It's hard. You, you spend so much time with someone, you get invested in their story. And when, you know, the inevitable happens, a lot of the times the only record of their life is what's left in some of these stories and some of these written words. One of the highlights of this was Corky Blankenship, who passed from COVID in 2021. And his story is remarkable. Corky was really well loved in the community of Denver. Like if you look in the magazines and the newspapers of Colorado, you see his face. He's a, he's a little guy, gray hair, a uh, little wrinkly, dancing all the time with one vodka in one hand, saying that's how I want to go out. But I think the point of the oral history is that he had a wisdom and joy about him, which was really remarkable. He always had a positive outlook, even when tragedy struck his life. He always said, I can go out and enjoy myself. Even in the worst of times, he could rejoice in the fact that he could go dancing and dance it out. But the joy of life that he shared with other people was magnetic and I think carried on and is a lasting legacy for him as well. So I'm very lucky to have had the opportunity about a year or two before he passed to have gotten his story. Now we'll hear from the late Corky Blankenship, a Colorado native and well-known LGBTQ activist in Denver. Historian David Duffield interviewed Blankenship before he died of COVID-19 at the age of 76 in 2021. Duffield interviewed Blankenship as part of the Colorado LGBTQ History Project. In this interview segment, Blankenship discusses living in San Francisco when Harvey Milk was assassinated, working as an artist who made wind chimes, and returning to Denver to work for his family business. What was it like when Harvey Milk was assassinated? You know, it happened. It was such a scary, scary, scary time that, oh my God, that could really happen. Well, because Jonestown was two weeks before that or something yeah. like that. And then Anita Bryant's stuff was just a year or so before. Yeah. 
you know, right when we really felt like everything was going our way and everything was so good, then that happened. And just to know that somebody could actually go in and kill somebody else, but just to have that happen was just, it was earth shaking and it was scary and it was sad. How did the city change? You know, I think that, and there too, I was pretty much not in the actually community. Right. So I had to still go out and I had to still might do my thing. Right. So I really, you know, we had the candlelight vigil and all that and they, all the sad things that happened there. But I still had to be out doing my thing selling. So it really wasn't where I was at the bars, where we would be there and just crying and breaking down. I had just, oh, no, it's sad, but I had my thing to do. Okay. But I think that, uh, I think the bars are in Castro. I imagine the morning and just the, the tears were flowing and everything that that had really happened. So you stayed in, in San Francisco for another five years after Harvey Milk was assassinated or six yeah. until 83. Yeah. And were you making it as an artist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like I said, I worked my tail off and I didn't get rich by any means, but I had enough that I was comfortable. I had my little place and the rents were to so cheap then. Yeah. I paid a hundred dollars <laughs> for all I had, <laughs> but I made enough to make, make a go of it, but I did nothing other than make my child, make my child. Make your chance, make your chance. Yeah. Did you talk with your family at all or visit or anything? Yeah, well, I'd come back at, like almost for a whole month during the summer mm -hmm. and almost a whole month in the, around Christmas. Okay. And then I'd go over to the daycare and help out over there. So you'd visit family back? Yeah, home. yeah. How was your parents' health, your father? Uh, actually, pretty healthy. Okay. And and even to, the, to this day, it's good that cancer wasn't much of in our in our lives. My mom was always very healthy. Uh, my dad was real healthy, and then he decided he was going to retire, and this is probably in 82-ish. And he, a car hit him right by our house and put him in the hospital and broke his jaw. Mm -hmm. So that was the start of the end for him because they had to wire his jaw together, and he died in 83. And that he died... Uh, I had actually even thought about moving back to Denver even before he had died. Right. So then that facilitated I had to do it then. So how did you feel like moving back to Denver? Once again, <laughs> once again, oh well, whatever. Oh, whatever. oh well, let's do it. <laughs> uh, just, I knew that I, my brother came out there and this is the brother that when things were good, we got along fine. So we got all the stuff packed into a big, trailer we pulled the trailer back well we got some speed so we did speed just kept driving it all the way back he had a big bat, a bag of grass up that we left in a motel somewhere yeah so we got back to denver and everything went okay uh -huh. but then we got back to denver and they were adding on to the house uh -huh. to give me a place for my, for my living and for my craft so I told him, like, I can move back to Denver, but I can't just live in a bedroom down the hall. So they were adding on, making this big addition to the house for me. Right. It was going to be done. It's going to be done. Here we get back there, and it's like, oh, honey, they've had this problem. won't be ready for another month and a half. What? Oh, well, I guess I'm in that bedroom. But I had all this stuff in the, in the trailer, in the U-Haul. So... We got back, and my brother got mad at me that night, screaming and yelling, and it's sort of like all that pent-up stress right. he had held, and he fired at me. Because he was working so much and dealing with the family. Uh, yeah, but it was more just geared at me oh. that all of a sudden when I said, well, what am I going to do? I guess I'll have to put it in the garage. Well, I think that just flared him because he didn't want to have to think about that. Right. He was back. He had done his thing. He didn't want to have to think about now. What do we do? Right. But I mean, duh! I got to think about it. <laughs> so that brought a lot of um, flaring from him. He was very pissed at me. Was he? Okay. So the next day, I got out there and here, uh, maybe a high school kid was walking down the street. I said, "You want a job? Help me unload all this. Get in the garage." <laughs> Twenty-two thousand pieces of silverware oh I brought God. back from San Francisco. That I. 
you know, I, I had it all. made in 10 years. Huh? Yeah, that's yeah, pretty prolific. Just that I collected. Oh, wow. I'd go to the, two of the uh, flea markets every Sunday. I'd have to get my spoons and my forks. So I'd go to five different people at each two different flea markets, and they would have it for me. Right. I didn't need a lot of what they bought. They had, but if I didn't buy it all, they might stop getting it for me. Oh, wow. So I'd buy it all. So I had all that I had to bring back Denver <laughs> and then have it and then made a few times after that but I haven't made any sense oh really well perhaps you'll get back into practice uh, I don't know I'll have to teach somebody <laughs> so as we look at this first period of your life maybe just in this interview how do you how would you describe yourself when you're coming back to Denver in 1983 uh, sort of excited because it was going to be a whole new thing it wasn't where I had to come back for any sad reason. It was more just, it was need, I was needed at the daycare. I would go over to the daycare where I'd be here, let's say Christmas time that year. And my dad's around that time, my dad was in the hospital. Okay. So I'd, I'd go over to the daycare and one brother was in the office. The other brother, Rick, he had the easiest job. All he had to do is take my, I'd have to open up three times a week at 6.30, uh -huh. close two times a week at 6. That brother, all he had to do is take the gay brother, Jerry, over to the daycare. Then as soon as he's there, okay, kids, who's going to school? We took elementary kids to five different schools. Wow. Right, who wants to go? And we were lucky because, oh, we could have got so much trouble. I can imagine. Because he would take kids in the school bus Two, we had five schools, like I say. Well, he's doing to these three schools. Who wants to go? Well, these ones from the other schools, they wanted to go on the ride too. If anything had happened and they were in the bus, right. and they loved Mr. Rick, Mr. Rick was fun. Well, there was one hill over in Ruby Hill. It goes down a hill. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Rick, let's go on. So he'd go up and then down. I mean, he was, Real fast. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and right ahead of you is uh, Platte River. Yes. Right there by the, it, by the Loretta Heights? Yeah, uh -huh. right around that area. Anything could have happened, but it didn't matter to him. So as soon as he'd take the last kids to school, nine-ish, well, his day's free. He'd go to Grandpa's and have a hamburger, <laughs> go to the pool hall, shoot some pool, yeah. go home and smoke some weed, come back just in time to pick up the kids oh, and bring wow. my other brother home. Well, here, now, they're supposed to be running this whole school, and I'd ask the, the brother that is there, well, what's happening down in the preschool? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm too busy up here. And I'd think, you are an owner and you don't know what is going on. Do we have 125 kids and anything could happen? <laughs> so that's why I thought I've got to be back there. Yeah, to take some control. And so for the moment, I'd, you know, I would love to have worked with the kids, but I was Mr. Corky this and Mr. Corky that. From the moment I'd walk in, oh, would you talk? We have a problem here. We have a problem here. Or social services here to talk to you about whatever. <laughs> that was the late Corky Blankenship speaking to historian David Duffield as part of the Colorado LGBTQ History Project. Blankenships and other oral histories are available online via the project's website, lgbtqcolorado.org. You are listening to Local Motion on KVNF. I'm your host, Laura Palmisano. Now let's return to the interview with Colorado LGBTQ historian David Duffield. You mentioned you're a social studies teacher. How has this inspired your work as an LGBTQ historian? In a lot of ways. I've worked to do LGBTQ history and social studies in a in a myriad of ways. When I worked in a middle school, I helped create a website called globalqueerheritage.com where we took LGBTQ history into world studies for the very first time. As a social studies teacher, I've worked to incorporate black LGBTQ history in my work frequently because I strongly believe that most of our stories should be told from the point of people who have never had their stories told. I mean, I've worked to help create LGBTQ curriculum in my own school district and about my own area, it's informed literally every aspect of it because I see a great breadth of possibility, much less a great breadth of necessity. I also serve on the Committee for LGBTQ Histories for the American Historical Association's Board 
And I talk with educators around the country around this, and it's it's scary for educators in Florida who are afraid of being sued for showing things like a Disney movie that features a gay character or to be cast out of their jobs as a result of this. And this hasn't happened for a very long time. The last time we probably saw something like this was the Briggs Initiative in California in the late 70s. So as an LGBTQ social studies teacher, it's a brave time and it's a scary time. I'm not necessarily worried about a place I live, but I am more concerned about the pushback I get from people across the country. And again, living in the middle of a moral panic, it's like you kind of have to go with what happens. It's frightening. It's frightening to hear about this from my social studies teachers in Florida. But it is so empowering when I talk with LGBTQ social studies teachers from around the world, from like Japan and England and Mexico and Brazil and South America. We're all thinking the same thing, that we lived under a system of erroneous oppression in which our stories have been erased because they're forbidden from being told that we have to start doing the same thing. When I was speaking with a colleague from the UK last summer, actually, she was telling me about as a social studies teacher, what it was like in Europe. And it's the same climate. There's a lot of fear, a lot of distrust, but she says, and I agree that the only way through is to talk. Right. We have to talk it out. Otherwise, we don't really have a way to push back against the silence. And the silence is the killer. The silence creates the fear. Tell us about your recent award from the Denver Public Library. Oh, yeah. 23 Eleanor Geary's Award. Well, I was very honored to receive this award. I was shocked. <laughs> I was I was definitely a little overwhelmed in the middle of a very hectic and turbulent year. I get this lifetime award. The reason that I was awarded was because of a relationship I helped to build between Denver Public Library's Western History Department and the Center on Colfax, not just creating an avenue for donation, but you know, doubling or tripling their their amount of LGBTQ-related archival materials. And really, I think it is also to set a precedent that other people can do the same thing. The night of the awards ceremony, my mother was there. I got a terrible bout of insomnia like the night before, and I had to teach a full day, which was exhausting enough. And so by the time I got there, I was on two hours of sleep. I had prepared a speech, and there were 70 or 80 people. And when I walked in, there was a little like placard with my face on it, and I thought it was like an in-memorial, so it was weird. People were like, are you sure it wasn't a funeral? And I was like, no, 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 that was a joke. But I got to sit down with people who had been around me for eight years. And while I was very tired and very overwhelmed, I gave a speech from the heart. And it was something to the effect of that this is the beginning, not the end. You know, the legacy of what we do today has ramifications for those tomorrow. Is there anything you'd like our listeners to know? Yes. I want them to understand that my philosophy in life is that the words we teach our children shape the world. And I mean that quite literally. If we are brave and bold in our authentic selves and we're sharing our stories, then the world listens to us. Because when we tell our stories, humans naturally are empathetic and sympathetic with each other, especially when we tell our stories through art. So when we're talking about the importance of this work, we're talking about the importance of the lives of those who came before and the lives who come afterwards. Our world is made better for the fact that we have a more diverse narrative about ourselves and a more diverse understanding. A simple point of matter is that if we teach our children the words that we have not been allowed to teach, not been allowed to know, the names, the places, and all of the different events in this history, then I believe that the world is better for it because our diversity really is our strength. That was Colorado LGBTQ historian David Duffield. I'm Laura Palmisano. You've been listening to Local Motion. Thank you for joining us.